Well, we've reached a milestone. Sam, I don't know if you've been keeping count or not, but this episode is episode number 50. 50. Yes, the big five zero. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? No, when you started, I said to myself, there's no way anyone reads books. Right, yeah. I thought there was like six books left on the planet. Yeah, there's like a hundred books. Mm-hmm. And they still make them. Yeah, and we're only at 50. So we got at least 50 more episodes to do to cover all 100 books that yeah, are left. Yeah, because there are a hundred books. Yep. Exactly 100. And and I'm going to read from some books today to celebrate the title of this show. The show is called Reading Aloud. It's not called Interview with Cool Person. It's called Reading Aloud. So let's read some stuff aloud, shall we? Yes. I got a couple things in front of me. I'm just going to impulsively grab one and start reading it. Um, But before we get to that... um, Big congrats to Sasha Pfeiffer, who was my guest last week, episode 49, uh, who was part of the Best Picture win at the Academy Awards. Holy moly. Uh, She was there with her husband. Um, The entire Spotlight crew was there, uh, and they won Best Fucking Picture as well as Best uh, Screenplay. So um, huge congrats to Sasha. I... um, I texted her yesterday, and she's like, now I'm back to the real world. I'm back to riding the subway to work and uh, no longer riding in limos to Oscar parties. Uh, So big congrats to Sasha. Um, Job well done. And if you hadn't heard that episode yet, it's incredible. It's a great conversation with a really compelling woman. Um, That was last week, episode 49, Sasha Pfeiffer. Uh, So big congrats to Sasha. Best picture. Holy fucking cow. Um... There is a book club. It's coming up. It's in two weeks. Uh, Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, um, perhaps his most famous book, maybe besides uh, Old Man of the Sea, um, and The Sun Also Rises. There, there's, there's a whole bunch. He wrote a lot of books before he shot himself. Uh, a Farewell to Arms is a fantastic read. I'm about halfway through now. And we have a very packed book club next week. So I'm excited to share that, or in two weeks. I'm excited to share that with you. You need to share your thoughts about A Farewell to Arms with me. Send an email to readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Get on board. Be a part of the show. Be a part of the book club. And uh, and we'll uh, read your stuff on the air in two weeks. Um, so that's the update. Sasha Pfeiffer helped win Best Picture. And you're reading Ernest Hemingway. On to the show. Boy, I am psyched about this sponsorship, Audible. Do you love books? Well, of course you do if you're at this podcast. But finally, you never have time to read them. Well, audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go. At the gym, during your commute, audible.com provides over 180,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on all iPhones, iPads, Android, and Windows phones. And you can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire. Over 500 MP3 players. Basically, if you have something that's electric that you can plug into a wall, you can get Audible. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books. They're there forever. So do it. Audible.com also has the great listening guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries. 
you can exchange that book for a new book. It's insane. Audible.com is there for you to exercise your brain and tell you cool stories. And for my listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. So go to audible.com slash Nate today and start your free trial. Audible.com slash Nate. Free 30 days of stuff. Get into it. Act one. I'm reading the first chapter from my favorite nonfiction book. Uh, is it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's Robert Evans' memoir, Hollywood memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture. Have you read this, Sam? Uh, no, I haven't, but uh, I've heard dude. great things. Oh, my God, it's so good. It came out like in 2000, 14 or 15 years ago, or 16 years ago now. Uh, and it was um, maybe the most, or it was, or 1994. Um, wow. God, was that that long ago? Jesus Christ. Um, this book is so much fun. It's a fucking party from start to finish. Uh, he just shares everything. He ran Paramount. He produced like every great movie in the 70s. Uh, Godfather and like Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown and... Uh, the Exorcist, and he was like best friends with Nicholson and Warren Beatty and Errol Flynn and all this fuck. I mean, it's just insane. He's married to um, Ali McGraw, uh, who's like the biggest movie star on the planet um, when uh, Love Story came out. He just writes about his entire career and does not pull any punches. And he's like, this person's an asshole. This person did tons of cocaine, and this person has a fast car. Um, so I'm going to read the first chapter of The Kid Stays in the Picture by Robert Evans. Here it is. It ain't no ordinary film. That's why. It's about the boys, the organization. It's a hot ticket. Was I hearing right? These words were coming from Sidney Korshak, the man whom the New York Times called one of the five most powerful people in the United States. For close to 20 years, Sidney was not only my consigliere, but my godfather and closest friend. In the past year alone, two phone calls of his saved my ass, literally. The first to stop the heavy muscle from threatening not only my life, but my newborn kids as well. Get the fuck out of our town, will you? We don't want nothing to happen to you or your kid. Go to Kansas City or St. Louis if you want to, but New York ain't opening up for you, was the threat from New York's five families. One call from Korshak suddenly threats turned to smiles, and doors, once closed, opened with an embrace. Al Pacino had signed on for another picture, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, and was contractually unavailable. A second call from Korshak, Pacino became available. Why was he now giving me heat? Come on, Sydney. It's a fucking movie. It'll be a bash. The biggest opening of the decade. Yeah, and he'll make it bigger. So what? It's my coming out party. He wants to be there. What's wrong with that? Nothing and everything. Silence. How's Allie? Fine. Is that all you can tell me? Yeah, why? Just asking. Did you fuck her yet? No. He hung up. I looked in the bedroom. Ellie was still asleep, or at least pretending to be. The night before, she had flown in from El Paso on the Gulf and Western private jet without a moment's rest, starting with a 6 a.m. wake-up call on Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway. It was after one in the morning when she finally landed at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey during the worst March snowstorm in New York's memory. 
For the past hour, I've been on the phone to Marlon Brando's agent, Marlon Brando's lawyer, Marlon Brando's manager, trying to get Marlon to fly from L.A. to New York for the world premiere of The Godfather. Brando had never gone to a premiere in his life, but months before, he'd agreed to Godfather the premiere of The Godfather. It would be this fuck you to the world, his comeback in spades. What a coup. It didn't last long. On a cash fee, Marlon's crazed ex-wife kidnapped their son, Christian. Marlon canceled out. Two days before the premiere, Christian was found. I tasted the drama. It had to work. Only one person could persuade Brando to make the opening, Christian Psychiatrist. I was waiting for her return call when the loudspeaker announced the arrival of Allie's plane. I rushed to the gate to greet my lady, who but two months earlier, against her strong wishes, I'd packed off to Texas to star with Steve McQueen in The Getaway. Two months had passed, and I hadn't once bothered to visit her on location. The very lady who but hours before we married had whispered, I love you, Evans. I love you. Then curling up beside me, forever. Forever? I whispered back. Never leave me. Promise? Promise. Not even for two weeks. Not for one. I'm a hot lady, Evans. Never change. Then never let anything get between us. Promise? Promise. Pale and windblown, she entered the terminal. Quickly, we embraced. Instead of kissing her, I whispered, wait here. I'm expecting a call. I'm exhausted, Evans. Can't you call from the hotel? When I told her I couldn't chance missing it because it was a call from Brando's kid psychiatrist, she looked at me as if I were the one who needed a shrink. She was asleep before she hit the bench. Allie McGraw, the biggest female movie star in the world, curled up in the waiting room of a freezing two-bit airport while her husband waited for the fucking phone to ring. It rang. For the next hour, Allie could have been back in El Paso as I went back and forth with Christian's psychiatrist trying to make her an offer that even Marlon couldn't refuse. A private jet for him and Christian. Father and son sharing the accolades together. What better reunion? The doctor wavered. I'll call you back. I've got him. I've got him, I said to myself, pacing back and forth, waiting for the phone to ring. It did. Anxiously, I grabbed the receiver. Brando? He passed. By now, it was almost 3 a.m. I hustled Allie through the falling snow into the waiting limo. Before the door closed, she was asleep again, this time on my shoulder. I was glad as my thoughts had little to do with her, only, how do I better Brando? Would you say I was sick? The next morning, the alarm blasted at 9.30. Instead of turning over to make love, I rushed to the phone in the living room. Weeks ago, I invited Henry Kissinger to the premiere. My timing couldn't have been worse. The North Vietnamese offensive had just begun. Naturally, he begged off. Hello, this is Robert Evans. May I speak to Dr. Kissinger? Dr. Kissinger is with the president, Mr. Evans. He'll have to call you back. Have him call me as soon as possible, please. It's urgent. Quicker than a junior agent at the William Morris Agency, within 10 minutes, Kissinger is on the phone. Bob, what's the urgency? I need you in New York. He laughed. When? Tonight. The Paris peace talks have just blown apart. I know it's on every channel, but I need you with me tonight, Henry. Real bad. Why? The Godfather. What? I couldn't tell him I was calling because Brando flaked out. Tonight, it's for me, Henry. It's the premiere. Win or lose, it would be worth it if I could walk in with you. We're in the middle of a blizzard, he paused. I'm in with the president all day. Again, he paused. I have a 7.30 breakfast that I can't get out of. 
a cough. I'm leaving the country tomorrow. Henry, I need you tonight. Only later did I learn that his leaving the country was in actuality a secret mission to Moscow, that his 7.30 breakfast was with Joint Chiefs of Staff to resolve the mining of Haiphong Harbor. A long pause. I'll get back to you. The phone rang. It was my boss, Charlie Bloodhorn, chairman at Gulf and Western, the conglomerate that owned Paramount Pictures. As usual, Charlie wanted to take my head off for something I had no control over. Life and Newsweek were on the stands with cover stories about The Godfather. Where was time? We need a triple blitz, Evans! A triple blitz! You can do it! I know you can! I'm trying, Charlie. Try harder! For me, Evans! For me! The Carlisle operator interrupted. Mr. Evans, the White House on the line? The White House? What White House? Bloodhorn screeched. Call you back, Charlie. It was one of Kissinger's assistants. Blizzard and all, the doctor was flying in to be with me. What time? She asked, protecting myself. 6.30, I said. Would you mind if the doctor changes at your hotel? Quickly, I dialed Blundhorn back. Charlie, Kissinger's coming. Kissinger? Kissinger? Evans, I love you! I love you! The management of the St. Regis Hotel rued the day they accepted to take on the opening night party. Celebrated, highly profiled, yes, but nothing was worth the grief of having to deal with the likes of me. With less than 24 hours till post time, I called for a full dress rehearsal. On inspection, I made them change the napkins, silverware, candles, and, oh yes, the food. After tasting it, I shook my head. No, it's too bland. Get me a new chef, a Sicilian. Then I took on the orchestra leader. Play the Godfather theme over and over until everyone is seated. But Mr. Evans, don't argue. He didn't. He knew I'd fire him. Finally, I gathered together the 18 security guards I'd hired to protect the party from crashers. In keeping with the spirit of the night, all were dressed in double-breasted striped gangster's suits and large-brimmed hats rented from Strock theatrical costumes. The fire ordinance of the St. Regis Ballroom would not permit more than 470 people at the post-premiere bash. When more than 2,000 people are invited to the premiere, the crash factor becomes the paramount factor in protecting the bash from a potential disaster. Protection being only as good as its weakest link, one by one I placed each striped suit at his immovable station, starting with the outside revolving doors, then to the lobby itself, then to every elevator, back and front, every staircase, back and front, to every lavatory and terrace. Did I plug every hole? I had no one 24 hours. I shook Allie awake. Better get some breakfast, baby. There's a car waiting. You gotta make it to Halston and back by four. Gotta go. Love ya. She crawled back under the covers. There was a rap on the door. It was Mary Cronin, a reporter from Time. She was there to see Al Pacino. Since Pacino lived in the cellar, no joke, a cellar, I'd arrange for them to meet in my suite for the interview. Al showed up a few minutes later, unshaven, wearing a navy peacoat and a knit hat pulled down over his ears. A second story man? Possibly. But not the subject of a time cover. Quickly, he pulled me aside. Can you loan me a fiver? I, I-, I need it for the cab tonight. I slipped him two crisp C-notes, which he pocketed without blinking. With that, I left, scratching my head. This kid's the star of The Godfather? was my ass on the line. It was me who fought the entire Paramount organization to cancel the Christmas opening. Give us time, get it right, touch a bit of magic. Not unlike a parachute jumper, a picture gets one shot. If it doesn't open, it's dead. Come on, fellas, back me. No one did, except Bluedorn. 
Even my so-called loyal cabinet begged me not to press my luck. Fuck luck, fellas. It's instinct. If I can't press it, I should fold. Luck fucked me. A blizzard in the middle of March. Outside, the storm is getting worse. I trudged to Melandavri, my tailor, for the final fending of my new dinner suit, black velvet jacket and gray flannels. Then to the St. Regis, where I completed the seating plan as well as tasted the new chef's rigatoni. Then, by foot, all the way across town to Lowe's State, where I was greeted by Al Lopresti, Paramount's ace acoustic guru. Is that you, Evans? You look like a fucking snowball. Fuck you, too. Let's get the sound right, okay? Don't worry, no one's going to show anyway. There ain't no way to get here. Both of us burst out laughing. How could this be happening to us? Not trusting anybody but ourselves, we planned our strategy to ensure that the sound levels would be correct for our now questionable night of triumph. During the premiere, Al would bicycle between the two projection booths, listening to my instructions from the walkie-talkie neatly tucked in the inside breast pocket of my velvet dinner jacket. Back at the hotel, Allie came back from Halston's. Being tired did not stop her from being accommodating as she tried on various outfits for my appraising eye to pick. After settling on black feathers over a simple black sheath, we added a tight-fitting black ostrich hat since she didn't have time to get her hair done. The Blue Dorns, my brother Charlie and his date and a few others were invited over at 6.30 for a taste of caviar and champagne. My first guest arrived early, Henry Kissinger. At 7.45, Allie and I joined Henry in the backseat of the limo. Pulling up to the theater, Henry leaned over. Bobby, will there be a lot of press? A lot. Somberly shaking his head. The president's gonna love this. The doors open. Enough flashbulbs went off to light up New Jersey. On one arm, Allie McGraw, the ravishing Mrs. Evans. On the other, the most charismatic statement in the world. Was this really happening to me? The paparazzi became so unruly that extra police were called in to physically push them back. Dr. Kissinger, why are you here tonight? One of them yelled. I was forced, he smiled. By who? Looking at me. By Bobby. Did he make you an offer you couldn't refuse? Yes. When the lights went down and Nino Rota's music swelled, my whole life seemed to pass before me. Here. Sitting between Henry and Allie, watching this epic unfold, I felt that everything my life was about had led up to this moment. Two hours and 56 minutes later, Diane Keaton asked Pacino if he was responsible for all the killings. No, he lied, then walked into the family library, leaving her behind to watch two of his hitmen, Richard Costello and Richard Bright, come in to kiss their new godfather's ring. The doors slowly closed on Keaton's face. The screen went to black. The credits started to roll. No applause. Not a sound. Just silence. Scary? No. Eerie. It's a bomb, I said to myself. I looked at Allie, then Henry. Their faces, too, were solemn. Let's get out of here. In the back seat of the limo, Henry shrugged. Reminds me of Washington, just different names, different faces. No compliment. He must have hated it. Squeezing my hand, Allie whispered, Evans, I'm so proud of you. It's brilliant. What else could she say? She was my wife. Am I an idiot giving a party? It's a mob picture, not a musical. 
Wrong again. It was a blast. I played Master of Ceremonies, introducing anyone and everyone, from Mario Puzu to Francis Coppola. They all made it to the stage. The screaming, the fights, the threats that never let up since day one of filming were worth it. Even Francis Coppola, the director who I'd hired over Paramount's objections and then personally fired four different times during the post-production editing, came over to hug me closing the book on two years of terrible battles, from casting to music in the final edit. Two jarring moments put a slight dent in the evening. Spotting Sidney and Bernice Korshak at a table across the floor, I rushed over and kissed Bernice. Without the big man, none of this could have happened. Join our table, will you? Not cracking a smile, he shook his head. No. Why? And give the fucking press a field day? Oh, come on, Sydney. It's your night, too. Like a vice, he grabbed my arm. Don't ever bring me and Kissinger together in public. Ever. Now go back to your table. Spend some time with your wife, schmuck. I hadn't been back at my table for more than five minutes when Jimmy Kahn, who exploded into stardom that night, rushed over. An embrace? No. He grabbed my other arm. You cut my whole fucking part out! Did I hear right? Sure. An actor is an actor is an actor is an actor. Allie never looked more radiant. For the rest of the night, we danced as one. Holding her tightly in my arms, I felt I was the luckiest man in the world. It was the highest moment of my life. Was I dreaming it? I was. It was all a facade. The beginning of the end. This episode of Reading Aloud is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash Nate, enter code Nate, and save three bones on your new subscription. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with each other about the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee 40 bucks in value in every crate, sometimes a lot more. Every month, there's a different theme, and all items are curated around that theme. Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, uh, Legend of Zelda, many more. This month is Versus, celebrating some of the greatest rivalries in pop culture history. Uh, Man of Steel vs. Dark Knight, Alien vs. Predator, Me vs. Sam, Daredevil vs. Punisher. Our exclusive items include something you can display, something you can wear, and something you can use. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe to receive that month's crate. So do it quickly. Once that deadline passes, you're screwed, pals. 19th of every month, 9 p.m. So go to lootcrate.com, L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks. Make it happen. Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM. It's like Netflix for podcasts. And the big news is that the first 30 episodes of Super Ego are now on Howl Premium. Superego presents profiles in self-obsession that are improvised, analyzed, and delivered by doctors Mac Orley, Jeremy Carter, Mark McConville, 
and Paul F. Tompkins. They have wonderful guests like John Hodgman, Patton Oswalt, Jason Sudeikis, Jillian Jacobs. Uh, you can get it all on How Premium. Also, you can get 120 hours of all the new original series, audio documentaries, 80 comedy albums, all the episodes of Comedy Bang Bang, How Did This Get Made, WTF with Mark Marin, Howl FM is where you got to go if you like podcasts. $4.99 a month. That's it. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month free at checkout. So you type in READING. So go to howl.fm, H-O-W-L.fm. Use the promo code READING for a free one-month trial. Get it! It's Act 2 of Reading Aloud. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's episode 50, so we're sort of celebrating the title of the show, Reading Aloud, by doing just that, reading things aloud. And I wanted to spend act to reading the piece that is the genesis of this show. Uh, this show formed in my brain when I was temping at an ad agency in New York in 2001, and I was sitting there eating my McDonald's lunch on the eighth floor of uh, 1630 6th uh, Avenue. 6th Avenue and 45th Street was where I went every day to temp at an ad agency. And I was not a reader. I barely read in college. Uh, I didn't read in high school at all. And I had some friends who I'd met who were telling me about this book. They're like, all right, you're not a reader. This book is going to get you into reading. And I was like, fat fucking chance, people. Uh, they were right. They were totally right. And this book like opened up an entire universe to me. Um, and I'm grateful for it. And I read this passage from this book and I finished reading it and I thought, holy shit, this is a book? A book can make me feel this way? I want to... I want to read this thing like a lot. I want to perform it because it's so fucking rich and great. Um, and then several years later, I'm out here in Los Angeles and, and I did just that. I, I found a bunch of passages and books and short stories and excerpts from novels and a bunch of other crap and um, rented a small theater in Burbank. It was like 100 seats, not even 50 seats. And, um, and just had my friends read stuff aloud. Just, just for the fun of it. And then Paul Shear was like, you should do this as a podcast. I thought, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe I can interview people and read some comedy stuff, read some heavier stuff. It'd be like a big, you know, messy variety show. This is cool. And now here we are, 50 episodes in, and I'm still doing it. Um, so this piece that I'm going to read is why I'm in this studio right now. It's an excerpt from... Uh, Dave Eggers' A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, which came out in 2000 and sort of took the literary world by storm. And he became an instant sensation. And, and uh, McSweeney's was sort of founded from there. And uh, he's been opening up these, uh, these storefronts all over America to spread literacy and to teach kids how to write. Um, and it's this passage that moved me to want to do this show. So it, this is a, it's like his memoir. Both of his parents died shortly after each other. His mother died slowly and traumatically from cancer. Um, and this is towards the very end of the book. He's gone back to Michigan. He's moved 
to San Francisco and he's raising his his kid brother, Toph, T-O-P-H. And uh, he's negotiating being a parent, basically, after his, both of his parents die, kind of suddenly and sadly. And so he, um, he goes back to the town that uh, he grew up in. He goes to scatter his mother's ashes, which he does poorly. He sees some old friends. He sees a friend of his dad's. Um, and then he goes back to the church, the church where they had the funeral for his mother, who he adored. And he describes going back to this church for the first time since the funeral. Um, and I've actually read this before. I read this for like episode two or three, but it, uh, it merits a rereading. So this is from Dave Eggers, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And here we go. I drive to the church. It's only a few minutes from the beach, straight through the heart of town, past the library and the barbershop. I park and walk toward it, the air damp, cold. The door is open. It is about 11. I open it a crack and peek inside, sure that this must be a mistake, that this church cannot be open at this hour. Inside, all the lights are on, though dimly. I walk slowly inside. The church is empty. I stop in the glassed-in back area designed for latecomers wailing babies. The church glows red. The nave is tall and white, and in the center is hung an almost life-sized Jesus, cast in gold, crucified, suspended by wire. So many times I had worried about the Jesus, that the wires would not hold, that it would fall, would land on the priests, the altar boys. I was much more comfortable when the priests were off to one side during the reading of a psalm or liturgy, when he would stand in the center, right under, doing the consecration, lifting that chalice over his head, ugh, that's when I was sure it would fall. It was just so precariously hung, just those two thin wires. This church is so small. I look out over the pews and the church is tiny. The pews are so low and there are so few rows, it was never so small before. I walk into the church's main chamber, up the center aisle on the red carpet. I walked to the first pew, where I had sat the last time I was here. I had been in the front row and had been turning around beforehand, waving to a few people as they came in. I was sitting with Toph and Kirsten and Bill and Beth. We were huddled together in the pew on its near end. We had been to the church, but had never sat so close to the stage before. My mother sat us in the middle, or the back, and we were thankful, because then the priest and his coterie could not tell if we knew the words we were supposed to know. I sat in the pew holding Kirsten's hand, playing with Toph's, dizzy, wearing my blue blazer, waiting for the service, all the glory. I had known for months what it would be like, had pictured it, the whole thing. There would be light. It would be day. There would be light through the high stained glass windows, prismatic. No, uh, the light would be direct. Direct, clear, wide, golden. The crowd would be endless. The church full like it is at Christmas, at Easter. The side aisles overflowing. The entire town there almost. 
all the relatives, her brother and sisters from out east, the cousins, my father's enormous extended family from California, all their former students, all the other teachers, all my friends, Bills, Beths, high school, grade school, college, TOEFs, their parents, the grocers, the doctors, nurses, strangers, admirers, everyone in their overcoats, their dark, deep colors, silent and reverent. The back entry area crammed, overflowing. Oh, but others would be outside the church. A hundred on the steps, in the courtyard, wrapped around the building, down the street, a thousand or so, waiting just to, to know that they were there, to validate, to help prove. In the church, the service would start, but priest after priest would stand and begin to speak, but then would be overcome and would have to give up, would, would shuffle to their red velvet chairs, yield the podium to the next, and then would weep, shaking their faces, resting in their long-fingered hands. We would be there in the first pew, the beautiful and tragic Eggers children, soaked in blood, stoic, as a hundred or more would stand before us and speak of her, all the gifts she granted them, and her life would be recounted in glorious detail, every moment, all the holding together and sacrificing and... And then the ceiling would go, the barrel vaulting would rise, and the entire roof would quietly unhinge itself and lift up, would rise straight up and disappear. And the church's huge wooden cross supports would fly up and away and would quickly get so small, tiny in the rich blue sky and would become birds. The church would double in size, would triple the space expanding, suddenly taking in all those waiting outside and then become bigger would take in everyone she had ever known, millions, all with their hearts in their two hands, offering them to her. The angels would come, thousands, slender, winged and bird-boned, descending and circling, all with sharp, small eyes, and they would be laughing, full of mirth. Why not? This was happy. Happy. My mother would be there. No coffin, no remains but her ephemeral, huge, her head as big as the nave, the angels moving around her, tiny by comparison, her hair, her original hair, feathered up huge the way she liked it before she lost it, replaced by the darker, tighter curls, and her squinty smile, all the crinkles at the corners of her eyes, smiling to see us all there, knowing all those she had touched were there. But they were giving back, giving at least this much back, Oh, such a celebration. And we and she would all be so happy not to see her as some embalmed thing, some rubbery and gruesome thing, but instead as this wonderfully glowing bright visage above us all. And she would be first smiling the big closed mouth smile she smiles, then that big small toothed smile she smiles. Then she would be laughing. Someone would say something funny and she would laugh that way she laughed, silently, crazily, out of breath. It was so funny, whatever someone said. Who said that funny thing? Who? Well, maybe I said it. Maybe I said it. Maybe I said it and made her laugh like sometimes we could. Really bust her up. So it was just killing her. This laughing. Her eyes struggling to stay open to see because, because when she laughed, my mom almost immediately teared up and had to wipe her tears with the side of her forefinger. Ah, oh, that's when you knew you had really said something funny. 
when she would be crying, wiping her eyes. You had her then. I mean, you really wanted that. There was no greater thing, no achievement so great, so stirring. I mean, you tried to play it casual, deadpan, but you were so proud and thrilled watching her. You wanted her first to say, stop, stop, because you were so funny, but you would continue because you wanted her to laugh more, to really laugh until she would have to rest, to half collapse on the kitchen counter while you were sitting at the table after school. Ah, you're awful, she would say, stop. Oh, but to see her laugh, you would say anything. And she so loved a good laugh at someone's expense. Bill's, Beth's, yours, her own. And at that moment, everything would be wiped away. All the times you feared her or wanted to run away or wondered how she lived with him, protected him. You wanted only her laughing like she did when she was on the phone with her friends. Yes, she would shriek. Yes, exactly. Then afterwards, she would sigh, breathing heavily and say, oh, that's funny. God, that's funny. That's what she would say. And she would say something like that as the church walls disappeared and the nave evaporated and the angels flew faster elliptically around her and we would all be feeling vibrations from an all or they were all inside us too moving elliptically or through our blood and there would be music uh ELO maybe Xanadu, maybe. Did she really like it or just tolerate it for our sake? She would hum along a little, move her fingers back and forth a bit, and oh, we would have such a time. (laughs) And then she would have to go. She would have to leave, but not before saying goodbye. See you, she would say, raising the last part a high note faux formality, and then turning from us to touch the small golden cheek of that broken and crucified Jesus suspended in the air. The nave gone, but it's still floating, the golden thing. She would touch it gently with the back of her tanned, ringed hand, that lucky bastard. And then she would be gone. And we would all collapse right there in the open church and sleep for weeks and weeks dreaming of her. Oh, it would, it would be something, something fitting, proportionate, appropriate, gorgeous, and lasting. I stand up and walk to the podium. It was a hundred steps that day, but now only two. Then I had a piece of paper. I had brought it, the one from under the couch, I had tried to recopy it onto a better sheet of paper than ran out of time. And I put the piece of paper in the podium and looked up and over the... Where were the people? It was not a crowd. It was a scattered thing, a few here, a few there. Everyone loved her. Where were they? Everyone, of course, knew and loved my mother, everyone, but where were they? This could not be. This would not do. A life and then this? This 40 people? Where's the woman who cut her hair? Laura. Was she there? Is she here? All the volleyball women, did they come? Oh, there's one, Candy, but... Where is her family? Where are her sisters? I mean, there's only Uncle Dan who has come, he says, to, quote, represent the family. And the cousins, her friends? I mean, there are some here, but my God, there are so many more. This is the crowd that was at my father's. It should not be the same crowd. 
the same number. They were not the same, these two lives. Where are the people from town? Where are the parents of her former students? Where are my friends? Where are the world's people to honor her passing? Was it too gruesome? Are we too vulgar? What is happening? All she put in, all she gave for you people, she gave everything for you people. And then this, she fought for so long for all you people. She fought every day. She fought everything, fought for every breath until the last, sucking everything she could out of the air in that brown living room, gasped again and again. It was unbelievable. Yes, she grabbed at the air, grabbed for us and for you. And where are you? Where are you fucking assholes? (laughs) There is so much uh, spittle on this book (laughs) right now. I've spit on this page thoroughly. Uh, But for good reason. Listen, I'm an actor, and I don't get to act every day. So that was me getting to act for 10 minutes. Uh, That's a passage from Dave Eggers, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Uh, And it's why I um, started this podcast, really. That was 15 years ago when I read this book for the first time. And uh, it still moves me. Um, man, it's just a beautiful memoir. It's so good. It's, he just he changed the game when he wrote this book. Uh, thanks so much um, for uh, showing up to 50 episodes. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy and, and proud to do this show every week, and I hope to do 50 more. Um, so keep listening. And uh, if you like the show, uh, subscribe to it on iTunes. That's helpful to us. And, uh, and support Howl and support um, the ads that we read here. Um, that also helps us too. So that was um, two very different readings, Robert Evans and Dave Eggers, uh, about the uh, premiere of The Godfather and a reminiscence of a mother's funeral. It's a great big world, Sam, and sometimes you have to accommodate everyone. I appreciate that. Uh, My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. It's a variety literary show, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with a book club. A farewell to arms, Ernest Hemingway. Pick it up at your local bookstore, read it, and join us, won't you? Be a part of the show. Come on, man. Hang out. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more Reading Aloud. I'm Nate Cordry. I love you, Nate. I love you, Sam. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. What movies deserve to be in the all-time canon of great films? How about American Beauty? What struck me watching American Beauty is how much it felt like a period piece, even though it's only 16 years old. Forrest Gump. This movie gets painted as a conservative movie, but this movie just hates everybody. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amy Heckerling cares about teenagers and understands teenagers. Star Wars. C-3PO is terrible, and uh, he treats his best friend really poorly all the time. But why and is he his best friend? They're just two robots. This Are is- my blender and my toaster friend? Join the conversation on The Canon with new episodes every Monday. Listen on Wolf Pop, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.